Welcome to season two of Witchlit, a space to talk about the craft of writing and writing the craft. I'm your host, Victoria Rashke, author, publisher, witch, and nosy Scorpio. Nicholas Pearson is an award-winning author and Reiki teacher. He has been immersed in all aspects of the mineral kingdom for nearly three decades. He began teaching crystal workshops in high school, later studying mineral science at Stetson University's Gillespie Museum while pursuing a degree in music. Nicholas is also a certified medical Reiki master and an animal Reiki practitioner and serves on the board of directors of the Shelter Animal Reiki Association. Nicholas offers seminars on crystal healing, Reiki, and flower essence therapy online and around the world. He is the author of eight books, including Crystal Basics and Foundations of Reiki Rioho. His latest book is Flower Essences from the Witch's Garden. Nicholas Pearson, welcome to Witchlet. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Victoria. I'm really delighted to join you today. I'm so excited to have you on. And as we talked a little bit before, I really enjoyed your book. It was a new topic for me. So I'm excited to kind of dig in to the the writing of this. Um, But our first question for all our guests, since we're a podcast about writing, is why write? Honestly, I write because I love to learn and my love of learning fuels a parallel love of teaching. And it occurred to me that there's only so much you can do with an audience like directly in front of you. But if you put that stuff down on paper, it can reach more people. And hopefully whatever we've written can help and heal and empower people. And that's that's kind of the crux of what I want to do. I mean, very secretly, I, I write in a manner where I aim to teach people to think for themselves rather than just rely on a book in a very dogmatic kind of way. Um, but, you know, that's not really good for book sales either. So, <laughs> um, of course, you want people to buy books, but I, I'm much rather to see people live the practice, whatever that might be, whether I'm writing about rocks or flowers or Reiki, and ultimately become their own authority through through that hands-on experience that they gain. Mm-hmm. I think that's clear just in, in this book, how much of your own practice is kind of woven in with the history and the theory and all of that. So I think you do a great job of that. And it's clear you're a teacher from your writing. Like, I think it shows in that. Well, thank you. So what was your writing journey to getting published? Had you always thought, oh, I'm going to write or did that come later or? Uh, I mean, very precociously, I've wanted to write a book for a long time. I started teaching classes on crystals when I was still in high school as a senior in high school, the local metaphysical shop kind of. Um, persuaded me to give it a go. And uh, immediately after signing on board, I was like, oh God, what did I get myself into? How am I going to do this? I'm just a kid who likes rocks. Um, But I had a very warm reception at the local level and it began to kind of branch out. And um, although I'm really well read and well studied, a lot of what I do is kind of motivated by just my own hands-on practice and what I've learned through trial and error and direct personal experience. So um, really early on, I kind of wanted to collate all of that and and write a book on crystals. That that book has never actually materialized. I started and stopped it a whole lot of times. And um, eventually life just got in the way and I completely shelved the idea, but I've always wanted to be a writer. And if we fast forward to many years later, when I was working my corporate America gig, it was like at the, the peak of it. Everything was going super well. Even when company-wide, it was not going well for most of my colleagues. I was really just hitting the stride. And um, I just had this idea one day, one of those like light bulb moments. I always have a rock or a gemstone or some other kind of ally with me for the day. And I had this beautiful piece of polished obsidian in my pocket. I didn't even make it like onto the road before I I really had this realization of no matter where you go in the world, obsidian kind of means the same things to all peoples. We we have in the archaeological record very parallel uses across culture and era and language. And it got me thinking about how there's this kind of universal or maybe archetypal role that certain gems have played across time and space. And that planted the seed for my very first book, The Seven Archetypal Stones. And I just kind of for fun sat down and started an outline, which 
became a bigger outline, which became a rough draft of a chapter. And I'm like, yeah, I think maybe I could write a book like this. And uh, eventually it, it became a whole book. It was quite up and down. But once I completed a manuscript, something that I'd been endeavoring to do for a really long time, it was like some some dam was torn down and the flow just came out. And um, I started that project in 2014. I'm currently writing my ninth book and I have detailed outlines for probably a dozen or so more books in the works. Wow. Yeah, that, I mean, that was a dam bursting to have nine books and what eight, effectively eight years. So book a year, yeah. a little more than a book a year. Um, I, I write very slowly, so I'm always really envious of people who can write quickly, <laughs> but it sounds like you basically were cooking on all of these books that whole time in between this first idea and getting that book out. Yeah. I mean, there was, there was a lot of gestating, we'll say, just letting things incubate and develop in their own time. The first book was arduous. The first chapter came out in like a week. The second chapter took something like four months and I, I almost gave up. But uh, luckily for me, I actually um, was at a trade show out of state, um, just having left my corporate gig. And I struck up a conversation with another vendor there who happened to be re representing a publisher. And we had a good conversation about rocks. And in light of that, she found out I was writing. I, I might have just kind of blatantly said it, knowing she worked for a publisher. <laughs> um, and she invited me to um, just submit what I had, even though it was a super incomplete manuscript. And the rest is history. Once once you sign on the dotted line, there's this strange kind of alchemy that takes place. The power of a deadline is a really strongly motivating force, which I have used both constructively and destructively in the ensuing years. But that, that was a really sacred experience for me to have someone not know me, not sit in a class, not, you know, see me grow, just listen to what was effectively an impromptu pitch and say, yeah, we should publish this. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it kind of reinvigorated my belief in that. And that was really helpful for me at the time. Yeah. Networking and events like that as a writer is, is so important. So have, have you stayed with that publisher? Have you been with them the whole time? I have. Yeah. We've, we've had a, I, I really adore my project editor and my publicist and all the other people that I interact with on a personal level have just been um, really great and meaningful. And um, yeah, we'll see what happens next. So you said you quit your corporate job. Do you write full-time now or, and teach or what, what is your, what does your writing life look like these days? I guess. Um, you know, I wear many hats these days. So I left that gig in 2014, uh, right after I reached the high point, I fell really down to the lowest I'd ever been in that career. And the environment got really toxic. I worked for, I worked for a company that had been bought out by a much larger corporation. And I found out retroactively, they were doing everything they could to kind of move us out uh, from the inside. So um, I took an offer to be like a traveling sales rep. And although that didn't really work out for my my finances, my lifestyle, my, my schedule, it got me a, a good amount of networking and some really fun experiences. But once that kind of finished, I, I put every spare moment that I had into writing, into developing new curriculum and teaching workshops and um, also into studying. I'm, I'm a perennial student. So every year I devote some time and energy and other resources to learning new skills and say taking new trainings as part of my own professional development. And I, I managed to mostly make things float that way. Um, these days I also work part-time at a local metaphysical shop. Um, I was uh, effectively the manager uh, a couple of years ago during the height of the pandemic. Um, that was a, a really time-consuming thing, but I also wrote this book at the same time. So while working full-time hours, teaching online, promoting my then new book, Crystal Basics, I also managed to write the largest book I have so far in nine months. So I don't really know how that happened, um, but these days I've, I've scaled back my my like in-person kind of presence quite a lot at the store. And um, I do a lot of writing and a lot of curriculum planning. So that way I can really focus on the things that I love most. I know when you said you weren't sure how you write it, I've always heard, you know, if you want something done, give it to a busy person. 
mm-hmm. because they will they will find the space <laughs> to do that task. So it sounds like you were just in that space of super productivity, whether or not it was necessarily things you wanted to say yes to, you were able to get it done. And yeah. I don't the pandemic early pandemic, especially was such a weird time. I mean, I had a book come out really early and then I had a book come out later in the pandemic. And I've talked to several folks. It's like either the pandemic was great for their writing or it just shut the tap off. I mean, it was like, there's almost no in between from what I, when I've talked to people. And I, I think it's probably has to do with how we write. Yeah. I, um, I think, you know, I always think about like having to feed the well, like interaction with people. And like you said, studying and reading and all of that. And the pandemic like turned a lot of that upside down for a lot of people. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, you know, working in the healing arts fields, though, those times of great uncertainty are when people turn to maybe tools that they haven't tried yet. So it, although, although uncertain, at times stressful and scary, was also a time of really immense hope to see so many people extending helping hands to one another and trying to hold space for that uncertainty with one another and um, trying to empower uh, the whole community, whatever our community looks like in, in new ways. So I, I really received a lot of inspiration from all of that. And it kind of galvanized me to do what I do with greater gusto than ever before. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when, on a day when you get to mostly write, uh, what does a writing day look like for you? Do you have rituals or is there anything that is kind of like your perfect writing day set up for you? Oh, I don't have perfect writing days anymore. <laughs> um, I, I've been dealing with um, admittedly some pretty intense burnout because I do a lot and it only seems to be increasing as the days go on. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we could back up a, a few projects and see what my idealized writing days looked like, they're, they were very intentional. They were very carefully curated. Um, I do my best work in short bursts. It's just the way my my brain does its best job. Um, and, you know, maybe there's a pathology underlying that. Who knows? It's not something I've gotten diagnosed before. But um, I like to be able to um, write until the internal timer runs out. That might be 15 minutes. That might be three hours. But the the moment I feel that lull, I just get up and I walk away from the computer mm-hmm. and I reset. So um, if you look at my writing space, there's always an instrument nearby. I play the French horn. I don't profess to play it very well, but it's uh, <laughs> something I've done longer than just about anything in my my life. So um, you know, I'll pick that up and you know play something fun, um, even if it's not well done. It, it's just like a a way to be creative. I'm not interrupting the stream of creativity, but I'm switching channels. So I can mm-hmm. let one channel reset and, and the other one just kind of keeps me from being on autopilot at the start of a day. Um, I do like to kind of do some, maybe not ritual, but there's some very intentional, um, self and space centering, uh, having immersed myself in flower essences, I keep a blend right in front of the computer that is um, ever-changing, that kind of works on whatever obstacles I'm, I've am i got with, with writing or focus or follow-through, whatever else it might be. Um, and then I do write like two feet away from the altar in my sacred space in my office. So um, some days, you know, they're sitting down to meditate and engage with my self-practice. Some days it's much less formal. It's lighting a candle or some incense and saying, um, all right, I'm going to need some help. I'm going to let you take over. Um, for some projects, it's been very ritualized. Every time I sat down at the computer before writing um, Stones of the Goddess, which was my fifth book, I, I really wanted to shift into a space where my writing became an act of devotion for the Divine Feminine. And in others, the act of devotion has been more of like service to community, like with my Reiki book. So it's been really reflecting on what the practice means to not just me, but the bigger picture. Mm. So um, I feel like every project has a life of its own. Every project kind of demands a a slightly different ritual, we'll say, from me. And I just try to stay as organic as possible with it. So that way I don't feel like if I I miss a step in the ritual, I'm messing up. Mm -hmm. I like that approach. I 
when you said, you know, dealing with burnout and if you don't want to talk about this, we can, we can skip it, but I, it caught me because I think we talk a lot about writers having writer's blog, but we don't talk a lot about writers getting burned out. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm really happy to talk about this. So, um, the project that I have under contract right now that I am endeavoring to finish before the deadline this, this year is something that I've had kind of on the back burner off and on for a while. It's a thing that I work on in between other projects because uh, I, you know, admittedly think it's a, a clever idea that that could really fill a, a niche. But I, I kind of come out of feeling excited about it because it's been on the back burner for so long it's it it feels stale to me even though i'm really mm-hmm. trying to do something new and innovative i've i've been working on it off and on for longer than i've worked on any projects so i don't know how many actual hours have been devoted to it because in the span of um you know from where i am now to where it first began on paper i've i've written three other books mm-hmm. so this this is something where i definitely just feel like i'm i'm kind of at the the end of the rope there. Um, I do a lot of writing that is not in a manuscript. And that's kind of new for me. It used to be if I wanted to teach a class, even if it was new, I, I would put my thoughts down on paper, I would refine it. Um, I, I like to plan like actual pen to physical paper, because it it causes me to slow down just enough. And I can scribble and cross out and draw arrows and make things not, not have to be perfect and linear. And that was really all it took to teach a class before. And now, you know, I start with that and then it has to become something very linear. And then there has to be a PowerPoint with a slideshow and I have to track down images and I have to, you know, be mindful of the time we spend in front of a computer screen. So there's still a lot of writing, but it's not the kind of writing that I find necessarily as fulfilling as, as actually writing a book. So that's one of the contributing factors to my burnout. It's, it's, it's like I want to switch gears, but there's always a new deadline. There's always a new class. And I adore teaching. So we can get burnt out on things we really love mm-hmm. just because it 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 becomes, a, a, we'll say, I don't want to say taxing, but, but it takes up a lot of time. And I, I can't, with a finite number of hours in the day, I can't do everything that I'd love. So that's where part of my burnout comes and uh, the sense of obligation, wanting to support everyone and everything. The last couple of years have been years of saying yes to everything. And I've, I've kind of framed this year accidentally as being my year of no. I've turned down more offers and proposals than I ever have. And we're only in May, the beginning of May. Um, and it's just because I have a finite number of resources and that includes hours in a day. And um, <laughs> Uh, you know, the ability to divide myself is not constructive for anyone. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm trying to kind of call back to center all the little bits of Nicholas that have been given away. So that way I can overcome the burnout and overcome the inertia. Mm-hmm. It's been six months of not really writing enthusiastically this manuscript. And that's the longest I've ever spent not working on a manuscript. So it's, um, it's scary for me to quantify that. Six months is not a long time in the grand scheme of things, but the longest I ever took off between projects before was maybe about three weeks. Mm-hmm. So this is a, a a large order of magnitude, and I'm I'm happy to say that just in the last week I've started to erode that inertia, and I'm starting to get back on the writing train. And you know, it's it's the very like planet on paper, write for whatever you know, fifteen hundred word segment I planned, or sometimes it's a two or three hundred word segment. And then I stop and switch gears and come back to it. Mm-hmm. And um, it's it feels so nice to be able to do this again. Yeah. I, I, I thank you for sharing that because I think it's, I don't know, it's just something that I think writers struggle with, but we haven't, like you said, we, we, we talk about, you know, we talk about writer's blog. We don't talk about burnout. We definitely don't always think about getting burnout on something that we love doing or giving us time to kind of take a break from that. And, and not feel guilty about it. Even I think there's, there's a lot of emotional stuff around that. And I, I think what you said to you about having another channel of creativity, I'm just in talking with a lot of writers and, and friends who are writers, there is something about having something else. Like I know writers who paint or like I do embroidery. And then I started a podcast, you know, like there's, you, you want to keep the channels open, but sometimes writing is not the one. <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm I'm not big on forcing things. Uh, they, if, if they don't flow, I just don't do it. I have a mm-hmm. lot of projects I've started and stopped over the years, not just in the early days, but I mean, even, even recently, there are a lot of projects that I have started and stopped just in the last three or four years, because, um, if, if it's not flowing, I'm going to let it continue to incubate and inevitably I'll find something that lights that spark that that creative fire and I can stoke that. But if I don't have more logs to throw on the fire, it's going to burn out as well. So I have Mm -hmm. to do something that keeps the fire going, that keeps um, that kind of creative flame alive, but also doesn't use up all my fuel. So, you know, for Mm -hmm. me, it might be making music. It might be um, (laughs) organizing my mineral collection. You know, that, that takes some creativity, especially with uh, more rocks than I have space to display. Um, And, you know, all the normal things that I think creative people and just people generally do spending time in nature, um, you know, savoring a good cup of tea, uh, whatever it takes, we, we need to celebrate those quiet moments rather than vilify them. I know it is so easy living under capitalism to think of those moments of not being productive, of the type of things that we're doing that can't be monetized as not being good, not being useful, but they are some of the most useful things in my day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, thank you for sharing that too, because I think that's an important thing for people to hear. Um, so speaking of the spark, so what was the seed for flower essences from the witch's garden? Cause I feel like this is such a unique book. Cause I've always felt like flower essences were kind of, and you talked about this early on, kind of in the realm of new age and not so much the witchery part. So how did this come about? Why this book? You know, it was one of those like shower moments, you know, I'm sitting there taking a shower, getting ready to go to work. And uh, it was like just before the pandemic really hit and like, Hey, I've got a book idea. You know, I'm writing another book, but I think I want to start this one. And that's, that was the moment, but the why behind it, I started working with essences more deeply after many years of not really using them. I was introduced to them uh, as I was transitioning out of high school into college. I had a dear friend, the owner of the the local metaphysical shop who invited me to teach my first workshops, had known me for many years by that point. And she was a flower essence practitioner who used the the batch remedies. She offered me a little custom bottle and said, anytime I'm back in town, we'd chat and make a new bottle for me to take back to school so we could kind of grow with me. And they were wonderful. I wasn't really sure what they were. I wasn't even sure I believed that they would work, but they did. And that was valuable for me. And eventually, you know, I just, I moved away. We kind of fell out of touch and um, it was a while before I'm like, oh, flower essences are a thing. Let me, let me get back into that. But over the past few years, I began exploring the, the native flora and fauna of my own landscape. I've been really inspired by bioregionalism in spiritual practice. And so I wanted to get to know the plant spirits that are here around me in central Florida. And the kind of natural extension of that was sitting with them as I made essences. And I noticed that as my essence collection grew, the ones that I made myself, but also I have this uh, intense stellium and Capricorn in my chart where my sun sign is. I really like things. I like objects. I like to own them. I love to collect them. Um, Like if I have to live under capitalism, I'm going to make it work for me and derive joy from participating in the system every now and then. So I have a large apothecary of flower essences. And when I was engaging with my occult practice, my uh, witchcraft practice, when a recipe might've called for a plant that I didn't have, let's say mandrake. I surely don't have any mandragora officinalis in my cabinet, but I have mandrake flower essence. So I could add a couple drops of that to a candle dressing or an incense, you know, not enough to drown anything. Um, And I began exploring other ways that I could use these essences in decidedly non-therapeutic contexts. And I have friends and colleagues who also use them kind of outside of the box, but there really wasn't a manual for it. So as I began kind of collecting these ideas through firsthand experience, but then also like formally studying flower essence therapy from um, lots of different 
different teachers and different systems, I saw a lot more overlap than I think either party really wanted to admit. So I thought, that's it. This this book needs to exist. I need to show flower essence therapists that their practice extends much farther back because it is a link in a very, very ancient chain. Although it is a very modern system as it is currently practiced, it draws from things that are you know older than anything else from the beginning of time, the beginning of our relationship with the plant world. Mm-hmm. And then also for cultists, I wanted to show them that there are other ways that we can work with our plant allies. It's not always about harvesting the material body of the plant. Sometimes all we need is that spiritual interaction and a flower essence is if nothing else, a a dilute but concentrated dose of a plant spirit energy. And uh, the book was kind of born out of sitting in that space where I straddled both of those areas and just kind of holding that complexity inside until it it finally made sense to me. Mm -hmm. The history was really interesting. I mean, even the explanation, like I have always thought of them as Bach remedies, like you said in the book, because it it's spelled the same way as the composer. Um, so learning that they were actually batch remedies or even beige, like depending on how precise you want to be the local pronunciation, like that was interesting. And like you said, just this longer history of them, because I, you know, just being in this realm, like I had a surface understanding of, of the fire remedies, but um what did the research look like for this? Because it seems like, yes, a lot of this comes out of your personal stuff, but there there are, you know, clearly not just from the footnotes and the bibliography, there was a lot of research that went into this book too, with the, um, especially with the compendium at the back with all of the different plants and remedies and what they're for, um, or essences, not really remedies, essences and what they're for. Um, so what did the research for this look like? Because it seems like it would be a beast. It was, and that's exactly what I enjoy doing. Um, nearly all of my books are very heavily footnoted and annotated. Um, I love big bibliography. Um, I, I I don't have like a, a formal degree. I left school before I got that far and changed tracks to all sorts of things. So, you know, I left academia, but academia never left me. So I love to cross-reference and find parallel thoughts that corroborate one another. Uh, so I've got a, a small library of books on um, herbalism, both the medicinal and, and more so the magical side. But then I also started collecting all of these strange and unusual books on, on essences, some of them fairly standard writing, some harder to track down. I enrolled in training with a number of different, uh, we'll say schools of flower essence therapy. I studied the, the batch remedies. I studied um, tree essences with Sue Lilly from the Green Man Tree Essences. Um, I, I took a, a class a couple of times with Christopher Penzak on essences made from poisonous plants. Um, I, I took a training called floral acupuncture that takes the batch remedies and uses the model of the meridian system, like the acupuncture zones and uses them for topical applications. And I did a lot of self-study as well. So the, the goal behind this was to kind of link together the botanical the magical and the vibrational and show that there is a a clear thread that combines them Mm -hmm. and to show that um, flower essences have their place in in magical herbalism we can use them for things that are not therapeutic but then also to kind of bring the the witchy folk into the fold of like that our plant spirit allies do so much more than just act as ingredients in a spell they are allies they are partners and there are subtle ways that we can incorporate them into our practice through the use of essences as well and um, i really just tried to find good we'll say anecdotes from all of those camps to to paint a picture for every one of the 100 remedies in the compendium mm-hmm. do you I, i'm curious because i'm wondering like you, you mentioned like the current trend to bioregionalism in witchcraft practice. And I think of like Robin Wall, Kimmerer's Braiding Sweetgrass book and kind of how that, even though it's totally outside the witchy realm, how it's really impacted a lot of practitioners. And it seems like there is this groundswell of, of really looking at our connection, our part being part of nature differently, like changing this Western mindset of nature as a separate yeah. thing from us has, has really happened. And it's, this seems like p- 
part of that same swell as a way, another way to look at, like you said, um, the, the kin around us differently. Absolutely. And, and, you know, there's this kind of intermediate stage between the materialist worldview that is kind of expounded from the beginning, kind of pounded into us as, as white Western folk and as people who live under systems built by white Western folk um, to like that truly animistic and sold world. And a lot of times we occupy that middle ground where we consciously understand that there are spirits all around us, but it's an us versus them kind of thing uh, because we, we forget to realize that effectively all spirits are nature spirits because everything comes from nature. Now in a modern industrial world, sometimes things come from nature only very, very tangentially. You know, here I am in a room that's made out of like concrete cinder blocks. Um, but even all the ingredients in the concrete, in the binding agent between them and the paint on the surface, eventually, if we trace it far back enough, comes from some ingredient that was either grown or mined. Mm-hmm. And even if we have to extract things and synthesize them together and it goes through 20, 30 stages between nature and my house, it still comes from there. And when we stop thinking of the resources around us as coming from nature, then we stop thinking of ourselves as coming from nature because we don't see ourselves as surrounded by living with nature. And it's it's really not an us versus them. It's a we're all in this together. And if we're all in this together, I cease being the most important spirit in my life. I exist in community. And when we shift into that, that I think that's where the real kind of alchemical perspective comes through. And we start to see that um, I am a we, that we are in this in many different ways. I mean, my body is an ecosystem. There are, there are more cells in my body that are not what, what my body creates of its own with my DNA in it, um, than the ones that are native to me. There's, you know, all the stuff on the surface of my skin and in my gut, all of these little microorganisms that keep me alive. Mm-hmm. So in a literal sense, my, my body is an ecosystem, but in a spiritual sense, we're also part of the ecology of spirit all around us. And we are dependent upon it. And it is dependent upon us for a balanced existence. And we have to, I think it is basically an evolutionary imperative. Like we, as, as humankind, got to figure this out. And we really have to be willing to sit with the sometimes uncertainty and discomfort that arises from recognizing, oh gosh, if we're all in this together, what are we doing to everything else? Um, But then also kind of lean into, all right, well, there's a way through. Mm -hmm. There's a way out. It's through. Um, And uh, cultivating relationship with the world around you is the first step. Mm -hmm. Um, You said that really beautifully. Thank you. can you talk a little bit about like the process of actually making an essence? I, I don't usually ask, ask such like pointed questions about the book, but like, it just is fascinating to me. And I think a lot of people listening may not be familiar with that. And so I just kind of wanted you to talk about that a little bit. I'd love to. So co-creating a flower essence or some other vibrational remedy in partnership with nature is an act in part of surrender uh, an act of cooperation. Um, and for me, it is in some ways a devotional act. I don't make an essence from a plant unless I am willing to use that essence to, we'll say, serve the well-being of, of all beings. Um, so the mechanical bit of it is really simple. In the the easiest and most universally used method of making an essence, you need good quality water. You need a clear glass receptacle for said water. You need something sharp to cut some flowers. Um, and then you need flowers and you fill the bowl with water. You take it out on a sunny morning and you cut the flowers, float them on the surface and you leave them in a sunny place for some time. The exact amount of time kind of varies from school to school. You could theoretically make them overnight or under the light of the moon, especially for nocturnal flowers. You don't really have the option of sunlight. So you've got to adjust things to the rhythm and timing that's available to you. 
And afterwards, you're going to bottle that. You're going to add a preservative so it doesn't grow any fuzzy stuff over time. And then you can kind of dilute that down to make a stock bottle or a dosage bottle um, to actually take the essence and, and use it. But although the mechanical bit is really easy, the most important ingredient is not necessarily the water or the bowl or the flowers. It is the participation of that plant. So we have to be willing to ask for said permission or cooperation. We also have to be willing to receive the answer that is no. Um, so when I'm ready to make an essence, I will you know, take notice of the plant. It's usually the first thing that happens. So recently I made a, a a native wildflower essence called uh, lizard's tail. And I started seeing it all around me and um, it, it just seemed more vibrant than it had ever seen before. And that's usually a sign that it's time. So then on the morning that I'm ready to go out and collect enough of these blooms to make an essence, I sit in the kind of thicket of them and I just quiet my mind and I ask. Now, plants usually don't speak in words. It's feelings and impressions, but I got a really strong sense that lizard's tail was on board. So then, then I just had to start collecting blossoms. And thankfully I had a small enough bowl and the flowers are large enough. It didn't, didn't take a lot. Mm -hmm. And after it, it finishes infusing, there's again, this kind of inner knowing you, you just know when it's done, if you've done it enough times, because the water feels enlivened. It's as if it is sparkling or twinkling or maybe even effervescent. And sometimes it appears like that in a purely energetic sense rather than in a, a literal and physical one. Mm. It just seems like so much more, a, a much more gentle way to engage too. Like I just think of, you know, like even this like resurgence in foraging, like depending on where you are, that can be really impactful on the, you know, the other people who share that environment, you may need that plant for food or, you know, something. So I think this seems like such a gentle way to have those relationships with plants without being as destructive to the plant. Absolutely. A little bit of medicine goes a long way with flower essences. There are even indirect methods for making them where you don't necessarily have to harvest the flowers. Um, you can you can do like pour over methods or, you know, uh, place the, the water in close proximity to the base of the plant. <clears throat> and all of that is um, a really gentle way. And then because it only takes a couple drops of that mother essence to make a stock bottle and a stock bottle can be used in similar dilution to make dosage bottles. I mean, one small jar of a mother flower essence could be enough for hundreds, maybe even thousands of bottles that you're going to put out into the world. So it is very eco-friendly. Um, it's a, a really generous thing to be able to do with, with plant medicine because we don't have to continually harvest. Once we've made that mother tincture, we get to keep working with it over and over and over again without continuing to consume more resources from the plant kingdom. Mm -hmm. oh. um. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm a little off track because I'm just thinking about the process of that and like what it just, it just seems like a really beautiful process in and of itself. And this idea, cause I think I've always been a little skeptical. Like I, it's just my nature. I'm a Scorpio, mm -hmm. <laughs> like I'm just a skeptical person, but like the, the way you describe it in the book and the way you describe it there, it just seems like such a gentle practice that has a lot of power just from the person making the essence. And like you said, the generosity of sharing that part of the plant with the world. Um, like, and it also seems in some ways so different than your other work, like it, with stones and rocks, but not so different from Reiki. Like there seems like there's a connection there. And I'm just thinking about you writing these kind of like tome reference books on so many topics, but really they are all kind of connected. They are, you know, they're all, we'll say energy medicine in one regards, they're all um, soul oriented therapies. It's about kind of directing our focus to that root cause of things, which essences are so good at doing gently over a long period of time. Reiki does very gently, sometimes over a very long period of time. And then, you know, rocks because they're, they're so tangible, so corporeal. 
Um, they, they sometimes are much less gentle than flower essences. It's not always the case, but you know, certainly they, they can feel a lot more intense for a lot of people working with them. Yeah. Oh, um, so in, you know, kind of in these realms, like what, who, or what do you read for inspiration? Like who, who do you go to for thoughts about, you know, either about flower essences or about your other work? Like, you know, what kind of, what material are you reading or who are you reading to kind of fill that knowledge, I guess, quest? And that's probably not the right word, but. (laughs) So actually I think quest is a really good word to describe this for me. I know our listeners won't be able to see, but here we are in zoom. You can see, I have this library of books behind me. Um, The, the short response is what do I read for inspiration? Everything. Um, I, I pride myself on curating a very, very niche collection of books and then just kind of going all in on whatever that topic would be. So when it came to flower essences, there's certainly a handful of writers who strongly influenced my work. Um, Christopher Penzak with his work, Plant Spirits and Witchcraft in general. He wrote the foreword to my book. He is my friend, my mentor, my teacher in, in a lot of different ways. So, you know, there's an obvious one, but um, some of the, the works that I found really inspiring for uh, the work that I did for Flower Essences from the Witch's Garden weren't necessarily about essences outright. Um, I I read works on uh, homeopathy and the vitalist school in um, herbal medicine and that kind of tradition. And I was reading about alchemy and the kind of history of medicine. Similarly, I was also reading about the history of um, ethnobotany and, and looking at how ethnobotanists kind of document and interact with indigenous people and their relationships with plants. And there's just something, there's something about the kind of astonishment that hard scientists always seem to have when, when talking to indigenous healers and, you know, how did you learn what, what this plant medicine does? It's, it's like every time they want the answer to be trial and error. And every time it's what the plant told us, the plant told us you take this much and that you take this much at this time for this instance and that much at another time for uh, another problem. And Mm -hmm. seeing how almost universal that spirit relationship is, um, has been really kind of important for me to keep in mind, Mm -hmm. even though even though the founder of Modern Flower Essence Therapy, Dr. Edward Batch, doesn't necessarily talk about plant spirits, he does talk about, um, we'll say, the essential nature in them or the soul qualities of the plants. He talks about um, their their effects as being, um, we'll say, heaven-sent virtues. And this this quality that he's describing feels a lot like the language that's used to describe plant spirit medicine from indigenous cultures. Mm -hmm. So I, I read a lot of different things. I try to seek contrary evidence when I'm writing as well. Like I want to see things from more than one perspective. It doesn't mean I'm going to agree with everything. Um, but then I, I sit and I kind of digest all of that before putting anything down on paper Mm -hmm. and, um, I have a lot of fun during the research phase of a project. And that's, that's something that has always kind of fueled me. And um, of all my books, the only one that's not ostensibly like heavy footnotes and research um, is, is the one that came out before this crystal basics only because like, I am the research, the product of the whole journey is what led that, you know, there are certainly footnotes, but there's, there's not 10 footnotes on every page. Like you find in a lot of my other books, because Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not quoting other people's ideas and, and, um, kind of leveraging them to launch my own idea. That was really just reporting the experiences I had it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what do you hope readers take away from this book or your work in general? Like what, what do you hope that engenders out in the world? I really want people to know that we have assistance, whether that comes from, you know, flower essences outright, if you read the book and want to work with those tools in a very direct, tangible kind of way, where that, you know, there, 
there are other practitioners who can assist you, but we also live in this ecosystem. And that is a, a literal kind of biological ecosystem as well as a subtle and spiritual one. And we can look to the resources that are around us to feel empowered to make change in our own lives. You know, no flower essence heals you. No essence fixes or changes anything. They are almost like tuning forks that play the correct pitch for us so we can hear what's out of tune and make the adjustment ourselves. And that's, I think, the best kind of healing because it demonstrates what we need to do or maybe nudges us in the right direction, uncomfortable though it may sometimes be, to make lasting change. Mm. So I just want people to know that you just have to stay the course and, you know, use the resources that are available to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that. Um, so before we get to our last question, our little game of chance, I wanted um, you to have some time to tell people where they can connect with you or get your books, or if you want to talk about any upcoming projects or classes or anything. Sure. Thanks so much. Um, I stay really busy with my teaching schedule, like I mentioned earlier. So you can find information about where I'm going to be and what I'm going to be doing, mostly in a virtual sense, online. Um, my website and social media will kind of direct you there. Uh, so you can find me as The Luminous Pearl on most social media. And also my website is theluminouspearl.com. Uh, I do a free monthly Reiki share. Um, every month. And then I also have an ongoing series of masterclasses where we pick a single rock and like really dig deep into the history, the mythology, the geology, and the sort of metaphysical qualities of it and say, well, all those things are interrelated. But I'm going to have a bunch of new material coming out that's related to flower essences, some longer format courses, and hopefully later in the year, some in-person events coming up. So just stay tuned, find me on, on the socials, and you'll be able to see what I'm up to. Great. Good. All right. So our last question is, um, like I said, a little game of chance. I'm going to roll a die. And depending on what number I get, you'll get a question that is related to your work or your book about death, sex, religion, politics, or money. And if I get a six, you get to pick which one you want. <laughs> this is my, um, my Scorpio attempt at talking about things we're not supposed to talk about. So it comes up in lots of other places in the website in the podcast too. So, so for politics, that's kind of interesting because we've skirted around this a lot, talking about capitalism and things. Um, so what do you think the social and political responsibilities of witches or mag magical practitioners are? Oh, um, to, to lead change. You know, witchcraft has always been a, a liminal practice, an in-between practice. There's an, an inherent otherness or queerness to it. And it is through that otherness that we can challenge the status quo. So um, I think everyone gets to define their practice for themselves and decide what it's going to look like. And, and my definition and my vision don't have to impede anyone else's. But but my vision is to disrupt things. Sometimes we do that merely by leading by example. Maybe it's mm -hmm. living more compassionately. Maybe it is, um, you know, holding the hand of someone who's really going through it. Maybe it is creating a sanctuary for people with marginalized identities of all different kinds. And um, the world is kind of a dumpster fire lately. Um, if 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 you are a fairly compassionate person who's paying attention to what headlines mean to real people, it is hard not to hurt some days. So I think that my role and my work is A, to offer some kind of medicine, some kind of healing or balm to those, those really challenging times, but, but also to remind us that we all have that magic in us to change. And again, it is a community effort. We are not operating as lone agents. It might feel that way, but we are part of ecosystems. We are part of communities and we have to rally those communities, whether they're in spirit or here in the social 3D kind of sense in the material world. Um, and my hope is that more and more people are going to show up and showing up looks different for all of us. We all have different abilities and resources and privilege and platforms. So I can't tell you what that looks like for you. All I can do is say that um, I am more interested in showing up with every passing day than I ever used to be. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I feel like we all kind of have to make that decision about how we best serve the world right now. And it is, as she said, a dumpster fire in many ways. So I think uh, I do like this idea though. And I think that this to me, um, and I love also how you just didn't hesitate. Like you had an answer immediately, <laughs> but, um, but I think this idea of community is so key, especially as magical practitioners or witches or, you know, whatever people, however people identify, I try not to do that for them, but, um, like this idea of you, you know, your lone prepping in the woods is not going to save you. You know, we have to, the way forward is the community as well, I think. And I think, you know, magical practitioners, we should be especially aware of that. And like you said, what that looks like in your community is different, but I think community has to be part of it. It has to be the basis of it. So, Yeah. And, you know, the flip side of that is um, self-care is community care. So if resources like um, flower essences or you know, witchcraft or crystal healing or psychotherapy um, are good for you. They are good for your community because you mm -hmm. can't show up for others if you don't practice that. So, um, you know, self-care is one of those really revolutionary things mm -hmm. and um, kind of operating again in, in the healing arts field where a lot of my, my work kind of lands the hardest. Uh, I think it is really important that we remember to use those for ourselves first and foremost before we attempt to show up for others because mm -hmm. we can't pour from an empty vessel. I mean, I'll use every cliche there is about this if I got mm -hmm. to drive the point home, but yeah. um, just like we don't operate alone, we can't operate alone on behalf of others. Mm -hmm. So we, we got to do what we can to fight the burnout. And I'm a poster child for burnout these days. So trust <laughs> that I'm using these tools. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I hope that others will also. Uh -huh. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show, Nicholas. And thank you for sharing your work and your wisdom. And I just, um, I'm glad we got to have this chat. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so grateful to be here with you, Victoria. Witchlit is a production of Thousand Volt Press and is edited by Kaifel Agostini, who also designed our logo. Our music is Voices, composed for us by Alexander Schnekar. You can support our work, get early access to episodes, ask your own death, sex, religion, politics, money questions, and get some free stuff by joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash witchlitpod. Transcripts and all our previous episodes are available at witchlitpod.com. And you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at WitchLitPod. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and consider giving us a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps other witches find the show. Thanks for listening and for reading Witchy.